Welcome back to another episode of Fighting for Justice. Today's episode, I am super excited. Mm. We have so much knowledge. I am so thankful to everybody for being here. So I'm going to run through. Y'all know who it is. It's my brother Dave Strenfell <laughs> here doing his thing. But today we have Judge Stephanie Sawyer with us from the CCP Philadelphia Judges. I'm telling you, once I'm done talking... She's going to blow you all away. Also, <laughs> who I have here is council member Isaiah Thomas. This brother, I am so blessed to be able to say that he is a friend of mine. He looks out. He is a good person. Okay, above all else, this brother is a good person. There's not enough of people like him in powerful positions. So today, guys, I'm going to do, that was my way of saying pay attention. <laughs> Put your phone down. This one going to be lit. Welcome. Thank you both. Thank you. Very much. Absolutely. So let's jump in. Judge Sawyer, please give everybody what they need to know about you. What do you do? Where do you come from? What do you stand for? Oh, that's a real, I could be here too give long. It, give it, to give it to us in a, in, a, in a quick version. <laughs> the condensed version if you can. Okay, so the most condensed version is um, I was born in New York, but I was raised in Philadelphia. Um, I kind of started, I knew at nine years old I wanted to be a lawyer because of a very um, hurtful an issue regarding criminal justice. And so my brother, back in uh, Rizzo Cop days, had special permission to leave school to go work at, at a steak shop to help my mom because I'm a single parent raised by a single parent. So my brother was uh, um, leaving school early to go to this job to help my mother pay bills, and he was on the wrong corner, uh, Rizzo Cop days, and he got swooped up like everybody else got swooped up. and. Uh, he was missing for a while. Nobody knew where he was, what was going on. Uh, it wasn't like him, so the folks at the job called the school and called my mom. And so we were in an uproar for, I want to say, about eight or nine hours. It wasn't until like 10, 11 o'clock at night. Apparently, he got beat up. Apparently, they um, realized he was not part of the mayhem and um, knew they made a mistake. And they just took him somewhere in South Philly and just dropped him off. He didn't know where he was. We got a call from Steve, um, that's my brother who passed in 2014. But at any rate, I was nine at the time and you know everybody was really upset, we were crying, nobody knew what to do. And we just felt so helpless, right? And when mm -hmm. he finally was found and we found out how mistreated he was and what had, had taken place, nobody still knew what to do. And it was at that moment I said to myself, well, I may not agree with the law all the time, but I'm going to certainly know it. And I was nine years old when I realized I'm going to be a lawyer because this, this was not right, and I need to know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, at that point, I was on countdown to get through uh, uh, um, <laughs> law school. So I said to myself, oh, my goodness, i got to finish and get to high school and four years of high school and four years of college and three years of law school. So it was my mission to get there as quick as possible. <laughs> so I, I went to Masterman, and the, uh, we, we skipped a grade there, and then uh, we wound up starting college at 16, right? Um, in, uh, um, in a focused fashion. And honestly, it wasn't my ultimate dream to actually be a judge. It just kind of evolved in that way. Um, at any rate, I, I practiced law for 20-some-odd years, 22, I think it was. Um, don't, don't quote me on that, but it was a, from 91 
until I became a judge in 2014. I'll let y'all do the math. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, it was my, uh, my proudest moment as a lawyer is I um, prosecuted a class action suit um, against uh, um, a Fortune 500 company because of the settlement. I'll leave it there. Um, and uh, it was about rate, uh, uh, employment discrimination. It was about something really horrific that was taking place. And I really wasn't an employment discrimination um, expert, but I made myself one. And we were able to get a seven-figure settlement. We took care of 263 folks that weren't being treated right. And so, you know, that's when I got my first taste of, uh, of how it felt to walk through a lot of, it took several years. I had to file bankruptcy a couple of times. It was it was a lot to, to, to get to the end of. Um, but at the end of it, it was the best check I'd ever gotten. Mm -hmm. So, sure. I mean, you know, it was better than any of those car accident cases <laughs> <laughs> I had to do. Um, and I also did family court stuff, and I did criminal matters, everything up to excluding homicides, because as a single parent, my children were with me, right? My daughter was born uh, um, in two weeks after, uh, not even two weeks, less than two weeks after emergency C-section. I was in court with her, right? And so I, she came with me till I was, um, till she was about three months old. I told him the story. Right yeah. I, I remember. Yeah, it, it, well, it's the truth. It, yeah. it, it, it's the truth. And so, um, you know, at some point, a friend of mine ran for judge and asked for my help. And of course, I gave him the help. And I kind of looked at what was going on and watched what was happening. And I said, mm, I could do this, right? And particularly since I was really frustrated um, that most of the judges I stood in front of, you know, they lord over people in situations they have no frame of reference for. So it's not that many of them want to be unfair. They don't know what fairness looks like. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yep. Right? Exactly. And so that supercharged my knowledge of, okay, I'm going to do this. You know? And so I became a judge. And uh, um, how far do you want me to go? Well, I, 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 <laughs> I want to I jump to Zeke, actually. I have a yeah. question for you to, to let out to the people sometimes. Um, people see us and they see kind of a polished, finished goal, right? And they look at you and they say, oh, man, well, you know what? You're a smart young man. How did, I'm, I can't do that. But what they don't recognize is that there are so many hours of work, right? I, I understand what it meant for you to stand here to say, you know, I am a council member because I saw the work you put in, mm -hmm. right? But what, what does it feel like for people to look at you, have all these high expectations, but they kind of skip all the hard work. What's your message to people? Like, listen, anything can be accomplished. You just have to go out there and get it. It depends on who the people are, right? If you're talking about, you know, the work that we do um, with young people, as far as mentoring, as far as in the academic space, you know, you have the ultimate patience for that demographic because at the end of the day, we were all there at one point. And, you know, they live in an era and a time that's totally different than anybody else that's ever grown up in the history mm -hmm. of the existence of the world, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's not just the pandemic. Of course, that's the obvious. But it's also technology and the impact that technology has on their ability to really recognize the importance of um, the type of work you have to put in to really put yourself in a position to be successful, right? And just think about it. Everything is right there at their phone. You can Google it. Sure. You can microwave it. It's all bing, bang, 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 bang. And at the end of the day, you're talking about what it takes to be successful, um, unless you're like extremely lucky or come from an extremely wealthy family. Uh, for the majority of us, that's not the path. It's not going to be a bing, bing, bing. It's not going to be a quick microwave thing. And if you don't have tangible examples of people that look like you, that come from where you come from, that success achieved a certain level of success, then all you see is what is presented to you. And often that is through social media as well as your uh, actual physical surroundings. So at the end of the day, 
it's not easy for a young person. You know, and I know people say, oh, they have access to so much information. They it's do. Much, they do much. have access to so it's much information, much. but it's not all good information. Right. Correct. Right. They have right. access to bad information. They have <clears throat> access to data and stats and, and, and things that tell them that they're likely to die than become a lawyer or becoming mm. a judge. And so at sure. the end of the day, um, when it comes to the young people, I have the ultimate patience. But one thing about being a young elected official, it makes other people want to run for office. Mm-hmm. Make other people, mm-hmm. other people look at it and say, "Oh, I can do that. If such and such could do it, I can do it." And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I, I I got my start because of Tony Payton, who was a young state rep that inspired me and pushed me and encouraged me to run for office. But I think when you look at what someone um, is doing and you want to replicate it, because that's the ultimate form of flattery. You have to also recognize the process and what it took for people to get there. And I think um, you know, I try my best to have an open door because I, I lost twice. So I, I wouldn't want anybody to go through what I went through to get to where I am right now. So I always try to help people. But you know how you look at somebody and tell them that this isn't the right time? Because mm-hmm. somebody looked at me the mm-hmm. first time I ran and told me it wasn't the right time. And I really wasn't trying to receive that information. Sure. So I, I just try to have um, an open door and as many conversations with folks as possible. So that it, when it comes to the young people, though, it's, you know, I'm – the ultimate unlimited access. But a lot of times adults, and I, I know how I was when I was 26 <clears throat> wanting to run for office, right. um, you know, you, you you tend to be stubborn. And, and and also, sometimes, even if you know you're not going to be as successful as what everyone else defines as winning, there are other success that come out of um, taking on a specific adventure that people might perceive to be impossible. Sure. Right. So sure. on a certain level, you know, sometimes you, you run – not to become elected, but you could still win, even though right. you didn't get the seat. You know the overall outcome, as it relates to what happens afterwards, are all positive. Sure, right. and, and that's not always necessarily the case. But at the end of the day, I think if you respect the process of anything that you're trying to indulge yourself in, as far as a professional career, you, you're going to have some level of success if you do things right. the right way. If you right. work hard, even if you right. don't achieve what you thought your ultimate goal would be. Um, there's still other opportunities for success. A lot of times people don't want to hear that, but at the end of the day, when you when you have that open mind and put you in a position where um, anything could be possible. So, I, I mean, I have patience for the young people, not as much a patience for adults. And it's not necessarily because I'm impatient. It's more or less because I've been in their shoes before. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not going to try to convince you of something that you've already made your mind up about. Right, sure. right. That's very difficult. Um, so I, that would be how I feel about it and what my patience levels are when it comes to that particular issue. I wanted to add, just chime in on what I, um, Isaiah has to say because when I ran, we, we ran together actually, mm-hmm. and when I ran, uh, um, I wanted to win and I didn't win, but I got enough attention, that's how I got the endorsement to get a, uh, um, the appointment. So I actually hit the bench because I was appointed MC, but that was be a function of how I did in the election. Um, so I didn't win the election, but I still won a seat. Right. Right. So you never know what's going to come from that doing the work and doing the effort. I just wanted to chime in on that because that's 100% on point. Yeah, and I'll piggyback off that as well. What I tell people is find find something that you are passionate about. Sure you are. Because what I do find in everybody that I consider to be successful is that by the time we get to what we call successes, we have so many hours put in. There's only mm-hmm. one way I can go into trial and do this. It's because I actually love the puzzle of putting a case together. I could do it for 17 hours without eating or sleeping. <laughs> By the time I do that for 10 years, I look up and, oh, my God, I'm really good now. Right. right? But I forgot the process because I loved it. And You know what, though? I'm not disagreeing with that. 
but I do think for our young people, especially today, it's hard. It's harder. It's not impossible, but it's harder for them to find something that they're good at, right? Like schools um, are limited as it relates to what they expose young people to. Mm-hmm. So you know how if if I don't want to be an athlete, if I'm not um, an entertainer. Um, and I come from a disadvantaged community, how do I find out what I'm good at? Sure. What if I'm good at coding and it was never exposed to me? Nobody never told me coding. no counselors. The the schools don't have counselors anymore. I I mean, we have so many different ways, innovative ways that people could generate revenue. There's so many things you could be passionate about. Think about how many young people play video games but don't know about gaming as an industry. Right, right. So it's like I could be passionate about video games. When we was younger, They, you know, our parents would say, put that slot down, put it away. Right. They would yeah. say, you can only play this a certain amount of time a day, which I'm not saying was a bad thing. It helped make me who I am today. But mm-hmm. just using that as an example of how the economy has changed you know, gaming is in an entire industry now. It's not just, you know, <laughs> Super Nintendo, Tech Mobile. It's a multi-million dollar industry. So at sure the end is. of the day, for a young person who might like video games but not necessarily understand that gaming is an industry, for young people today, it's very difficult for them to find what they love and find what their passion is because they don't always necessarily have the exposure to understand how to monetize their passion. And on top of them not having the exposure to monetize their passion, they're dealing with so much trauma. Yes. And in dealing with uh, all of this trauma up close and these life and death things that happen to young people at such a you know like at such a young age, it affects how they're able to even communicate. And then we talked about access to information, right? So it's not just the trauma that you see and experience in your life and with your family. It's not just the pandemic. It's the things that. Are happening that you know are, are happening to people that you never even met before. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. You know, I found out the hard way that I'm not as entrenched in the hip hop space as I really wanted to be uh, or thought I would be at this age. But at the end of the day, you know, listening to all the young hip hop artists who've been murdered mm-hmm. in some way, you know that that's traumatizing. I right. I can list on my hand, and we thought that we had a lot when we were growing right. up. As far as True. artists, you know, these young people today, they're hearing about um, artists. They're hearing about um, even athletes, you yeah. know, yeah. who, who, who passed away. We've seen car accidents. We've seen it, the helicopter accident with Kobe. And then they, and then they so tape much. them. And then, and, and then they, and then they tape them because you know. I, That's I, another I'm, thing, my, right? My, my daughter um, uh, knew, knew, yep. knew PNB Rock, and so imagine oh, yeah. how traumatizing it was for her to watch him bleed yeah, out. It's all, right. it's all recorded. I mean, right. it was several days that I had to kind of talk her through it because that's that's terrible. It is. It's, yeah. it's a terrible to happen, but you get to look at it on your phone because somebody put it on social media. My goodness. And, but I think that we what we need to do is do, and obviously you guys know I don't have any children, but just from an outsider's perspective is like we need to talk to them a little bit more, right? Well, I mean, my daughter's 23, so it's not, you know, it's it's not like a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old where sure. you can put right. some parental controls on them. She's living her life. Yeah. No, and I feel exactly what you guys were talking about because throughout uh, the, the COVID time when the insurrection was happening, it was the first time where I kind of had no choice but to sit there and I couldn't escape right. the feeling of depression. And mm-hmm. I went from like, oh, my God, these people are, these white people are about to get they're, they're about to die. And I was I found myself being excited, which was weird for death. Right. And then it didn't happen. I <laughs> went from excited to, to depressed angry. to angry to like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding <laughs> to me. To angry because if it was... Uh, Exa- and then I was like, oh, <laughs> yep. man. Black this Lives is- Matter folks were there. They, they got mowed down. <laughs> yeah. And it just, it was, it was a come to Jesus moment for me. Like, uh, okay, you, you have to let some of this go. 
You do. Because otherwise you'll get washed in it in this country. And that's Mm -hmm. one thing that I think we do need to to explain to our young people is that, listen, it is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to hurt. It is okay to talk to somebody about what you're going through because none of us have the answers. Sometimes as adults we may pretend, we may put on a fake front for the kids to make Mm -hmm. them, you know, oh, everything's going to be okay. That's a facade sometimes, guys. It's okay to come to us. It's okay to come to your adults, your parents. It's okay to break down. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so many of our our young kids walk around scared to even talk to us, that they walk around with anger and pain and they just lash out because they have nothing else to do. And some of that I feel as though the adults, we have to do a little bit better job letting them know this is a safe space for you Mm -hmm. to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. How do we get that message out to them systematically? I mean, we see it with all of our clients. I mean, how many of them are just struggling with something like that, right? And right. Ultimately ended up, you know, how they were either arrested, got in trouble in the first place, and you know they're not a bad person. They're just going through stuff. Right. And I mean, you know, it's, it's sad to see. It is. I want to I want to swing to uh, Judge Sawyer specifically. I want to talk about uh, Supreme Court Roe v. Wade. Um, as people probably know, the Supreme Court as of Donald Trump elected two new Supreme Court justices who said they were not going to overturn Roe v. Wade. (laughs) They went to Congress, said that they were not going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and then they got on the Supreme Court, and they overturned Roe v. Wade. So first question is, how do you feel, like, how do you feel as a judge, should you, should there be a consequence to going to Congress lying? Now, see, the answer as a judge understanding the law in the way that I do, the answer has to be no, right? And the reason the answer has to be no is because when they were speaking to Congress, they were very careful to not talk in specificity as to I will do this, that, and the other uh, um, without the attenuating facts surrounding it. Mm -hmm. So their out is, oh no, in this particular case I ruled this way because in this case (laughs) these facts made me feel this way and the decision I made was geared by this particular factual scenario. And since, you know, you could Say, as a lawyer, Jonathan, you know, as a lawyer, you can distinguish a case by saying, oh, we had a red tie on in this case, <laughs> but today he's wearing a blue tie, and that just makes everything all different. Correct. Correct. <laughs> so, so on the one hand, th- th- there is that gamesmanship to it, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, that's how lawyers and legal professionals are taught to think in, in this pure syllogism kind of way um, that gives them cover for making a decision in the moment when they feel like it. Yep. Very well said. We have debated this over and over, and that's where I always came down. I was Because if you heard, if you listen carefully, they always, well, it's the law of the land. Right. Is, it's, does that mean it's the law of the land? Right. So if you say that, guess what? There's no way to come back at them and say, well, you lied. No, no, I, that was a fact. It, it is the law of the land, but the facts, the things presented, I had to make a different decision, and right. I'm sorry. Right, exactly. So then you'll always get out of it, and it's very lawyerly. It is. So I'm going to swing it. I'm going to swing it one further now. So now that essentially, what there now there is no federal protection, right? So now what that means is that uh, abortion is a state by state by state issue. Correct. So as long as your state decides, whatever your state decides, right? So there is an election that is coming up, and one clearly is 
uh, pro-choice. One is clearly, you know, pro-life. Who's that for governor? Is that for, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. For uh, Josh Shapiro, Mastriano. So can you talk about the importance, right, of an election? What does it mean for you as a judge? Does it, is it something that you would like people to know? Well, I, I'm going to bounce past a little to Isaiah only because as a sitting judge, we have some prohibitions on deeming uh, or saying things that, uh, see, it's not just actual impropriety that has been uh, canonized in judicial ethics, because that's easy. I'm not going to do anything wrong. True. That's easy. <laughs> right. But it's the appearance of impropriety that can get you the same kind of uh, um, difficulty in terms right. of ethics. And so I don't want anything that I say to be misconstrued to um, say that I'm um, endorsing any Under, candidate. Uh, or, right. or, 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 uh, um, but I, I, having said that, I'll put the, to the side who's running where, doing what. Uh, I, I think it's absolutely absurd to say that a person doesn't have the ability to lord over their own body, that the government can tell you what you can or cannot do with your own body. And that's my personal decision. And that's uh, um, and listen, a lot of these big questions can be answered very easily with mind your business, <laughs> right? If you think abortion is wrong, you shouldn't have one. And I'm done with it, sure. right? Um, but beyond that, I'm going to bounce past the, the political ramifications to Isaiah. I, I, mean, I mean, the election this November is extremely important, and I think what it does is it provides people with an example of the importance of the executive branch of uh, the states and the commonwealths in the, in the entire country. I mean, a gubernatorial race couldn't have uh, two people with more different opinions as it relates to a number of issues. Roe v. Wade is one of them. Mm -hmm. Public education is another. The minimum wage is another. We can name a number of issues. So, yep. I mean, I always encourage people to go out and vote because at the end of the day, um, no matter how you feel about a particular issue, um, that's how your voice is heard. Absolutely. And when you choose not to participate and you choose not to engage in the process, you're basically saying, you know, that someone else can order food for you. And that never made <laughs> sense to me, right? Like, who goes out to dinner and pays for a meal, but let someone else picks what they eat. I mean, if you're going right. to choose your food, if you, you know, well, I don't go shopping, but if you go to the mall, <laughs> you know, somebody, you know, Shout who's going to, gonna, right, well, I mean, but I'm just saying, who's going to put up money for sneakers or clothes and let someone else pick it? I mean, at the end of the day, you pay taxes, right? Yep. So you can't say you're not putting up money because unless you're just, <laughs> yeah. you know, have completely removed yourself from societal norms, you know, you do pay taxes. You yeah. are involved in this process. You do have skin in the game. And so let your voice be heard. I always try to encourage people to vote, especially young people. I understand why. Um, no, actually, I don't. I understand why black people are disengaged in the voter process because, you know, government has hasn't had the best relationship with the black community. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, I don't agree with adults who are disengaged in the a, a, a political process and people who choose not to vote. Um, I know who I'm supporting personally this November. I know that um, you know I'm pushing people to go out and vote and make sure your voice is heard. But I, you know, I know some people who are saying, well, I'm not going to vote. I don't think that my vote makes a difference one way or another. And I mean, I can give people a ton of examples of how, you know, just since 2020, how people's vote has made a ton of difference. If, mm -hmm. I mean, we talk about Roe v. Wade. The only reason that happened is because of the 2016 election. Correct. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, Because people went out and voted. Well, I mean, or, or didn't. Or didn't. Right? Yeah. Or didn't. I mean, 2016's election, um, you know, we're suffering from the decisions that was made in 2016 and 2022. Correct. You know, we're benefiting in a, on a certain level as a city, uh, Philadelphia specifically, from the 2020 race. And, I mean, if we didn't get federal 
If we didn't get federal stimulus money, which was a thing that the Biden campaign, uh, the Biden team campaigned on, it's not just the individual checks that people got, right? Like that's however you feel about that is how you feel about that. But if local municipalities wouldn't got stimulus money, we would have had to increase people's taxes. And what mm-hmm. would have happened is you would have seen a lot of poor people being priced out the city, yep. right? Like I get it. Philadelphia is a big uh, city. We have a larger poverty and a poor population in most big cities in the entire country. But part of the reason why is because we offer a lot of protections and we don't push people out the city. A lot mm-hmm. of the co- cities on the East Coast have priced their poor people out, Sure, right? Boston, New, New York, York yep. D.C., Right, they've priced their poor people out. So at the end of the day, I'm not saying that we've totally fixed the poverty problem in the city. It's going to be a, a ongoing fight. But what we have done is we put ourselves in a position where we're not pricing poor people out the city, even when you look at the impact that inflation is having on the city. So, you know, your vote matters. It matters significantly. This election is another example of huge issues that are, are going to have a big impact on the direction that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania goes into. But at the end of the day. The person who wins this race is probably going to be governor for the next eight years. The person who wins the mayor's race in 2023 is probably going to be mayor for the next eight years. So mm-hmm. the next two elections are really going to dictate the next decade for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And sure. to sit it out would basically say, <laughs> maybe you plan on moving. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, on, on the importance of uh, election, I got to say two things. One is, you know, when I did win the election, it was by less than 300 votes in the wow. city of Philadelphia. So every vote counted for me. But to contextualize that, though, you're talking about an election where probably uh, hundreds of thousands of people voted. So exactly, yeah, I just because yeah, right. they'll probably have a listening audience that's not necessarily they you know in Philadelphia. So correct, when they say oh, 300 people, well, in my city, only 3,000 people, people voted. Vote. So yeah, 300 no, no, is a no. huge margin. But in the city of Philadelphia, <laughs> yeah. 300 is like less than one percent of the it, electorate. It, it was it was a it was a raise. It, put it this way. It was such a razor-thin victory. The person that was just lost the seat behind me, who was 13 and not 12 like I was 12, mm. they re- there was a recount. Sure. So, yeah. and, and with that number being so small, I, I was concerned about the recount. You know, and the other thing is that, you know, politics essentially at its root, it's about the allocation of limited resources. And those limited resources are going to be allocated rather you involve yourself or, or not. not. Right. <laughs> Kenyatta Johnson won his first city council race in 2011 by less than 50 votes. Wow. His first city council race in 2011, mm-hmm. he won by less than 50 wow. votes. So I don't care where you live or what's going on like that, you know, less than 50 votes for a district council person. And to be honest, the district that he represents is the largest um, economic engine for the city of Philadelphia, which essentially is the largest economic engine for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So think about the fact that that race was <laughs> yeah. determined by 50. less than 50 votes. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Wow, that's crazy. Guys, all, all I'm taking from this is make sure, if, if you are of age to vote, from this podcast, Dave and I make sure that we try not to sway you who to vote for because the truth is, it is your decision, okay? Mm-hmm. make But it is also your right to educate yourself, right? You can come to these things and listen to these things and get the information. But just because this is Judge Sawyer, just because this is council member, just because I'm we are attorneys, does not make us right. All right? Do your own research, but make sure that you feel your voice counts. Sure and vote, right. and vote, and vote. Amen. And take somebody with you to the polls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Give yes. someone a ride. Everybody get out there and vote. So speaking about giving rides, I want to swing to <laughs> Isaiah. <laughs> and your <laughs> nice, nice transition. That was nice. Thank you. I'm, 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 I'm getting better at this. So Isaiah has um, a bill that you passed 
And I'll let you talk about it, but the brilliance that I saw in it was that, you know what, this person clearly looked at a problem without a legal mind, that I, the legal training, and said, okay, you know what the issue is? It's too much police interaction for small little things that are causing astronomical problems. So maybe if we just kind of separate those uh, instances, now whether it, what, whether it works or not, I guess we'll see. Hopefully, it, hopefully it's, it's working. I want you to kind of talk about how you came up with the idea. Are you happy with what it's doing? Are, are there things in the application of it that you would like to see? Yeah, I mean, so the legislation you're talking about is the driving equality bill. And uh, this was a bill that um, we originally introduced in a law in 2020, uh, but didn't essentially get passed into law until the fall of 2021. Uh, so when we, when we introduced the bill in its original form, uh, we introduced it because we recognized that there was a problem. We have been working on it for a long time. I don't want folks to think that because of George Floyd, you know, we introduced the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been working on it long before that. And honestly, um, it was something I campaigned on, was to try to do something to address stop and frisk. Now, when you talk about the motor vehicle code for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, that's technically state law. Mm-hmm. So we did not modify the motor vehicle code. All we did was said, as our own county, as the city of the first class, uh, we wanted to determine what the implementation of the motor vehicle code um, violations look like. Mm -hmm. And the crazy thing about it is, right, when you try to do something for black people, um, you know, folks always want to fight you. Mm. And in the midst of, like, (laughs) doing the research around the bill, you know, there's technology that people use to enforce motor vehicle code violations. And when you look at, like, rural areas where people have issues with speeding, we talk to the technology folks they don't use police officers to enforce speeding. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Think about the public safety hazard that speeding is, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that they say, well, we're not going to use police officers. We're going to use technology to enforce speeding. Sure. So it's like, wow. Like, And again, this is a rural area, so it's not necessarily a black space. So now take that same concept and come to Philadelphia. We're saying, okay, we want to use different mechanisms to enforce motor vehicle code violations that are not a public safety hazard. Mm -hmm. So before I even get into the legislation, the craziest thing is that we're in the middle of a lawsuit with the FOP right now because they're saying that we legally can't do it. And the thing that baffles me is that if I wasn't trying to protect black and brown people and the phrasing of it was to protect a different demographic, would I still be going through this right now? Mm. Because the concept of that what we're trying to do, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying the concept of what we're trying to do, it's been done other places, sure. right. but it sure. hasn't been done with the umbrella of, of addressing social justices. It's been done with Sorry, the umbrella Jim. of... Of a, uh, uh, with a with with a different purpose in mind. Right. So with that being said, the bill basically looks at eight motor vehicle code violations and looks at what the um, enforcement uh, consists of as it relates to moving away from a motor vehicle code stop. So just think about these violations. We're talking about um, one uh, taillight being out, mm-hmm. right? So think about it. it's 2022. Right, think about the back of your car, mm-hmm. right, and, and, and not your turn signal, but a tail light. It, it, most of the time, if one is out, not only is it just probably an issue with a bulb, mm-hmm. right, but also because most of our cars nowadays have multiple lights on the back, how can one argue that's a public safety hazard? Mm-hmm. The other two things in the bill, because it's eight total, are inspection, in, inspection, and emission stickers. Well, mm-hmm. think about those stickers. How can someone see them? And that they've expired by just driving past. I don't even notice that until after I pulled you over. Anyway, trust me, I'm Correct. an expert on being pulled over. Yeah. They don't notice that until you've already been pulled over. That's when they look That's at your admission and inspection. Mm-hmm. So technically, that was already on unofficially that was already on the list. Think about um, 
what happened uh, with the gentleman down south where he got mm -hmm. pulled over for a car freshener in his car. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's another example, right? So uh, we're basically saying to enforce these motor vehicle code violations, you don't have to use a traffic stop. That's four. We gave a 60-day grace period for registration, thinking about people purchasing new cars and mm -hmm. the changing economy, but also thinking about the fact that we were in COVID. Man, and yeah. for you to get ex um, your registration done and do things online was a new process for a lot of people. These are motor vehicle code violations that we know don't have an impact on public safety. And the data basically told us that when police stopped to search people um, for um, some type of gun or some type of contraband, less than 1% of the time did they actually find something. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the equivalence of 14 years of manpower used to stop people with no weapon or no gun being recovered. Yeah. So at the end of the day, uh, like most people in the private sector, the city is going through the great resignation era. We're struggling to hire people. We're struggling to hire police officers. We're struggling to maintain or to retain people in all departments. Mm -hmm. So why would we continue to ask police officers to be spread thin to enforce motor vehicle code violations that's not a public safety hazard? Exactly. Sure. On top of all of that, I drive in the city of Philadelphia. I drive every single day. I know a lot of elected officials don't drive themselves, um, you know, and that's their choice. I, sometimes I don't drive myself, but most times I drive. Mm -hmm. People drive reckless. <laughs> they're speeding. Yeah, yeah. They're running stop signs. There's yeah. all type of motor vehicle code violations that are a public safety hazard, and we want you to pull people over for that. Mm -hmm. Think about the issue of tent. Tent was one of the issues that we argued about, <laughs> and a lot of us will say, "Oh, okay, you know, well, um, you know, uh, I'll ride around with tent, and there's nothing wrong with it." I personally don't think there's nothing wrong with it, but the reason we did not put tent in the legislation is because we don't want to have any perception that this is going to have a negative impact on public safety. So sometimes, sure. you know, people will troll me on social media and they'll, an uh, incident will take place and it will be, it will involve a, a car with tent. And what ends up happening is that because it involved the car with tent, people will say to me, oh, well, that's because of driving equality. And look what you've done, Councilman Thomas. And I'll say, you know, I don't really comment, but in my mind, I'm just thinking, Tent is not a part of the legislation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> it's nothing in the bill prevents people from being pulled over for driving with tent that's too dark. Sure. Uh, we have issues with cars being stolen in the city of Philadelphia. Nothing in the bill prevents police from pulling Pull somebody up. over who's driving in a stolen car. Sure. And the thing that is the most hilarious part out of all of it is that the bill was passed into law in the, two th in the, in the fall, of, in the winter of 2021. But it wasn't, it, it didn't go into implementation until the spring of 2022. So when you look at all the crime issues that people try to tie to the driving equality bill, I only laugh because people don't even understand when the bill was implemented into law. Sure, sure. So right. a lot of the issues that we're facing as a city started long before the bill was implemented sure. into law. So when you ask how is it going, I mean, from a public perception perspective, we're not necessarily happy with the narrative that a lot of people are pushing as it relates to what the bill is or is not doing, but as it relates to the data, you know, we're not mad at all. We have to continue to monitor the data throughout the course of this year because it's only a couple months old right. as it relates to the legislation, mm -hmm. and the data is somewhat skewed. We're not sure. Are we? Uh, we're not sure if the data is based on more people carrying guns. We're not sure what's going on in certain districts as it relates to captains because there's a bill that mirrors the actual enforcement of motor vehicle code that requires a certain level of data to be communicated. And right now, we haven't even gotten to the point where we have the technology to report the data the way we're supposed to. 
So the bill itself right. has it, it's not old enough to really say it's having a positive impact or a negative impact. Sure. But what we do know is that cities across the country are looking to replicate it and people are looking at it as a national model because at the end of the day, it puts us in a position where we're more efficient sure. as a city. Absolutely. We spend anywhere, I know you guys are lawyers, you'll love this number. We spend anywhere from 10 to 30 million dollars a year of settling lawsuits. Yeah. A lot of them started <laughs> with motor vehicle cool stops. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about being efficient as it relates to the time and what police officers are responsible for enforcing, but it's also about putting us in a position to address some of these issues as it relates to social justice, civil rights, and not paying out so much money that we're paying out as a municipality. Mm -hmm. You gave me a lot of credit for um, the, the the bill and the concept behind the bill. And, you know, while as a politician, that's our job to take credit, <laughs> it, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of legal minds that was involved in this process that, you know, helped us think through it. So, mm -hmm. you know, first and foremost was Kira Bradford-Gray, who right. at the time of the uh, in, um, at the time of the introduction of the bill, she was the chief public defender in mm -hmm. the city of Philadelphia. So just coming up with the idea of how we do this, you know, she really helped with that because we had set some level of precedent with what we did around small amounts of marijuana. Mm -hmm. And after that, right, we had a working group from the time the bill was introduced in 2021 up until we got, I mean, 2020 till up until we got our final version of the bill in 2021. And that working group, of course, consisted of my office, the public defender's office, the mayor's office, as well as guess who? The police department. police department. So the police department sat with us and helped us craft the bill over a one year period to put us in a position where we can all agree upon things that would not have an impact on public safety. Sure. By the time we got to the end of the bill, of course, we had to take a couple of things out. And you know, noise ordinance is an example of something that was originally in the bill that we ended up taking out. And that was because one of my colleagues had issues around ATVs and uh, modified vehicles. And so we're already in a process of purchasing technology as a city to use technology to enforce issues as it relates to noise ordinances. But I didn't want to put it in a bill originally because we are receiving so many complaints about it that we wanted to uh, continue to give police the authority to do whatever they felt was necessary to address that particular issue. The reason I brought that up is because I need people to understand that this process right, was not a dictatorship. We negotiated this process throughout the course of the entire time. We got a lot of feedback. We did uh, town halls in collaboration with Power 99. And, you know, we did a ton of stuff to make sure people understood what we were trying to do and also to get people's feedback as it relates to uh, what they think about the particular legislation. So I'm excited about the bill. I'm excited about where we are. But I'm even more excited about where the legislation is going and what direction we feel like this is, um, um, what direction we feel like Philadelphia is headed, but also the impact that the legislation is having on the entire country. Amazing, amazing. Yes. I want to swing. I want to keep it going. Oh, did you? No, no. no. Right, I'm going to keep it going, Judge. I'm going to swing it back to you. And essentially what I wanted to ask you is, as a judge, it's one thing as a lawyer I've always said, like, man, you know the one job I actually don't want is the judge. <laughs> That's it's actually a lot harder because all my job is to do is advocate. to try and convince, right? To try to, to advocate and fight. But to after to actually have to put a number on somebody's life, to actually have to be able to say, okay, now my job is to make this decision, right? So my my question for you is kind of two-part. Number one, how do you remain in trying to be fair while you're trying to play the role of, I guess, the punishment, right? Weighing what's best for everyone. And then number two, what do you see your role is? How, how else do you try and help what are you getting involved in that helps the system and not just, you know, your role as a judge? Well, see, first of all, 
punishment is a reason to punish uh, to to sentence, right? <clears throat> it's just one of many reasons, right? And somewhere we lost our way thinking that it was the most important reason, right? Somewhere you know we we lost our way thinking that when folks uh, um, are convicted of crimes, that means it's time to drop the hammer and put them in a box, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have, uh, uh, when we first got on the bench in 2014, it was um, my desire to make sure that I did not judge in a way that would feed the beast that is mass incarceration, right? Because it is so short-sighted, right? People talk about crime and, 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 and those kinds of things, but mass incarceration actually creates the desperation that gives birth to the crime you say you don't want to have. So it's short-sighted, right? People need a stake in society in order to protect society. Mm -hmm. Hurt people hurt people. It's just that simple. Traumatized people act traumatized in various different ways, right? This is not an excuse. There's a fine line between an excuse and a reason, right? I'm talking about reasons. I'm not talking about excuses. And so in, in our courtroom, we use jail unless there's a legitimate public safety uh, uh, um, situation. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. But we use jail as leverage to get folks to not recidivize and to reimagine their lives to be productive. We run a program called <clears throat> Resource-Based Sentencing and Supervision, right? Um, we when we first got on the bench and knew that we didn't want to continue to judge in the way that the system generally uh, operated, um, we had to first look at you know, how it was operating in a way that fed the beast that is mass incarceration, right? And one of the things that just popped right out to me is that judges generally speaking, except for carve-outs, when I say carve-outs, I mean when you Talk about ARD, Accelerated Rehabilitation Disposition. That's a program that says if you have a zero prior record score, you know, we don't want to put you through the system. So we're going to carve you out mm -hmm. and treat you like this under the ARD program. Or where you have um, veterans that, oh, we serve the country and, you know, they have mental health. And, well, you know what? If you're a veteran, if you fit this description, we're going to carve you out of the system and we're going to treat you like this. Mental health court, oh, you might not be really totally um, intentional in this. There might, you might not have the, the requisite mens rea. And then, you know, you might not be able to help yourself, right? Okay, so mental health is real. We're going to carve you out of the system. And I said to myself, well, what about the actual system? To heck with all of these carve-outs. Mm -hmm. What about the actual system? And one of the things that you find is that after a person, rather you have a guilty plea or rather you have a negotiated plea or rather you have a trial, when a person is convicted, whatever the mechanism, they have to face a sentencing judge, right? And that sentencing judge generally sends them, if it's probation, they flub them off to a probation officer. If it's incarceration, off to the Department of Correction you go. And since 90-something percent of them get out, <clears throat> off to parole you go. And the very next time that judge who sentenced you sees you is when it's time to punish you again because a probation or parole officer uh, feels that they're so frustrated and they opine revocation, and then they schedule 
the VOP hearing, or if you get it, that the person gets a new conviction or a new arrest. So in those three instances, a new conviction, a new arrest, or a probation officer that's opining revocation, and they uh, uh, schedule a violation of probation hearing, they get back in front of their sentencing judge who has no experience with them because they haven't seen them since they sentenced them or the last VOP hearing, right? right. They're mm -hmm. going to rely upon the probation and parole officer, and right. they're going to drop the hammer again, yep. right? And so that is a huge thing that feeds the beast that is mass incarceration. And so resource-based sentencing and supervision says this. We prohibit that practice where judges don't see people other than to punish them. Resource-based sentencing and supervision requires that when a person is sentenced, there is a comprehensive sentence, right? And for every condition that that judge decides to levy, they have to provide a cost-free resource to fulfill that condition. And then you have to check on them. Mm -hmm. right. You can't just say, here's a ton of information, go do better. Because <laughs> right. if you could go sure. do better, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't be in front of me in the first, first place. First place. <laughs> right? You can't just say, go do better. Yeah. Right. right? Right. So, so uh, um, you, you give them the resource. And it also has a check and balance on, on, on a judge giving too many conditions because they're limited by what condition they can give to what resource can match that condition to make sure they meet it. And you utilize jail as leverage to get them to do what you need them to do, right? Now, don't get me wrong, there are, in my estimation, and this is not empirical data that has been uh, um, massaged pro appropriately, it's just in my experience and my readings and all of those things, you know, only 10 to 15% of the folks that come in the criminal justice system are so broken that they're only going to wreak havoc on the rest of us, right? I mean, I just recently sentenced a, a, um, a, an almost 60-year-old man um, that in an ex uh, in a, a isolated area of a recreational center kind of hemmed up a, an 11-year-old and was exposing himself and about to rape her. And when somebody happened upon him saying, hey, she's a little girl, what are you doing? Instead of dropping it and running away, he pulls a knife on the guy, right? So in my position, he's 20 years since he had another conviction, but I don't have any programs for you, sir. You're going to jail. <laughs> right? Right. Sure. That, that, that's part of the 10 to 15% that I'm talking about. So mm -hmm. don't get that's me wrong. Right. When there is a legitimate public safety issue, then you have to act accordingly, right? But that right. tells me that there's 80 to 85, 85 to 90% that just need help, right. right? Desperate people make really bad decisions. Yes. Right? And yes. when that desperation is compounded by losing everything you have when you get locked up, you come out more desperate and you double down on those dumb decisions, yeah. right? And then, you know, after being sat in a box for a period of time and treated like an animal and you open up the gates and you go, hey, what's wrong with him? Like, does that make any sense? And so uh, resource-based sentencing and supervision is, is, is intended to require, it, it, the uniqueness of it really is that for the first time, it's a system of accountability right. whereby the resources are brought into the courtroom and both the resources being used and the defendants ordered to use them are fully accountable to the sentencing and supervising judge. And is that something that's in, in specifically just in your courtroom? Is that something implemented that you're trying to implement in larger places? That I mean, it's a brilliant idea, mm -hmm. so we, we must pour <laughs> the gasoline on it and tell the world about Correct. it. Correct. Right? Well, when things make sense, we got to blow it up. Exactly. Well, 
It is, uh, um, I am the prototype courtroom that does it. I do have a few colleagues that have my resource-based <clears throat> sentencing and supervision binder. Um, so there are two judges um, that use it relatively uh, frequently, and then there's maybe three or four judges that kind of sort of use it. And so that is what brought on the next step. I said to myself, how do I grow it where it takes fire? And so because of that, I've, I thought of... Uh, um, a foundation, right? Because one of the other problems that we had with resource-based sentencing and supervision is that if they're not nonprofit organizations, I can't order a defendant who has no mm -hmm. money to go out and pay for a for-profit resource right. that they need. Right. So I came up with the idea of uh, what we just uh, uh, um, announced on September 13th, which is the Sentencing Foundation. And of course, Isaiah is one of my board members, along with eight other very dynamic, equally dynamic people uh, um, that are, you know, we got to have the CFO and, and, and so forth without getting into the minutia of, the, of, <laughs> of what all of our board members do. But trust me, they're equally dynamic as Isaiah, who is our legislative affairs uh, um, chair. Um, and so uh, the, the Sentencing Foundation is intended to do just that. Right? It is intended to connect judges to resources and resources to judges. Right? It is intended to take the small, efficacious uh, uh, nonprofit organizations that don't have funding and give them funding through grants grant if they work with resource-based sentencing and supervision and become certified resources. Mm -hmm. Same thing as judges. Judges will get uh, um, registered and then they'll get the binder and they'll get the tutorial on exactly how to work resource-based sentencing and supervision. And once they become certified judges, meaning they've utilized resource-based sentencing and supervision for a while, once they become certified judges, then they will have the right to hand out vouchers for gap resources. So if I want to send mm. somebody to uh, uh, um, TAIA for $550, you can uh, um, take somebody with zero electrical skills and, and they'll be making $14 to $16 an hour, get a job at the end of it, making that, and then the next module is on them for $550 that gets them to 21 to 24 hours, and the next module that gets them to being an electrician of their own. And then we put them off to a resource that, we put them off to a resource that's an entrepreneurial resource that teaches them how to get their LLC. Most of my corner boys are only frustrated mm. entrepreneurs. If we can just hey. get them to change their product, we'd be doing something. <laughs> so... So my point to you is that, and I have empirical data out the yin-yang, excuse me, episodical data out the yin-yang, where now uh, one of our board members, our Harvard-Yale guy, is getting our empirical data together. Um, and so the Sentencing Foundation uh, is about to drop a website, and, and the web drop event should be coming up December 1st. And so... We're thinking by the beginning, and, and you know, there are other things that we're doing. We're connecting with judicial educators nationally uh, in New Orleans, and so we want to get this program in there. We're connecting with national uh, um, reentry resources because I liken myself to be a dot connector, right? The, mm -hmm. the, 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 the material needed for this to work is out there. Right. It's just a matter of organizing it in a fashion where it will work in, in a meaningful way. And so the Sentencing Foundation 
is the logistical support for resource-based sentencing and supervision that can allow what I do to be duplicated in courts throughout the United States, rather rather uh, state or federal courts. Any judge that sentenced somebody needs to first ask themselves, is this a legitimate public <clears throat> safety uh, situation where I need to put this person in a box? Right. Or is this somebody that could be a meaningful part of society and raise their own children as opposed to being left and, 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 and again, you talk about the young people that are, that are wilding out right now. When you think about mass incarceration and when it started in the 80s and the 90s, when it really took off, you know, the, the you know, crack raised a lot of babies. So now we're two generations past that, and we got kids that have, that, that kids raising kids, yes. kids that yep. are two, three, four, five, six years old, waking up and seeing crazy things, right, that right. becomes normal to them. And so now we're two generations past that, and now let's sprinkle on top of that a bunch your guns and then people are asking why things are going crazy i just don't understand why people don't understand if you just pay attention a little bit it makes complete sense and now we're going to turn this around and actually give desperate people help we're going to actually uh close the trust gap between the criminal justice system and the ordinary person if the only reason why a person after they're convicted comes to court is to be slammed by a judge and never helped right. by a judge right yep that's another reason why there's a huge trust gap. So there's so many reasons why resource-based sentencing supervision has to catch fire, and the Sentencing Foundation is the mechanism to make it happen. I, whew, chills. <clears throat> and and as you, you you said, the trust gap, that actually reminded me of something, Isaiah, that um, my mom sent me about, you, you went to a gun court, and she sent me a proposal that you were working on, and you talked about uh, trust, right? You talked about how what you learned in, in gun court was how, you know, the, the people don't trust the police and how, how, you know, we need to do some things uh, to help get witnesses to to court, right? Like, what did you learn in gun court? What yeah, do you, how do you think we can get the trust back with our community and the system? Because the truth is, the system is kind of untrustworthy. So, so like, yeah, I, I didn't, when in the, in the midst of the gun report, it's the system that people don't trust. I don't want to, right. and that's what it is. It's, right. it's the system and the process. So, you know, when you talk about witness and victim protection, that's, that's you know, that's the system right there. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge issue because at the end of the day, um, we've seen a lot of clerical issues. Um, we understand that we're dealing with a, a crime crisis all across the country, but we have to focus on Philadelphia. And at the end of the day, um, when we looked at the numbers and the data, one of the things that we see is that on a consistent basis, witnesses and victims are not showing up to court to testify in gun-related crimes. Mm -hmm. And it's our obligation to do something about that. So what we're trying to do is put ourselves in a position to address that issue by putting more revenue into witness and victim protection. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the things that Judge Sawyer talked about are systemic solutions to put us in a position to rebuild trust between communities especially communities of color and the system, right? Mm -hmm. But I think what we have to do as legislators is think about the Band-Aid side. What can we do right now, right? Because right. you got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to, you know, stitch up the wounds, of course, but we need a Band-Aid to stop the bleeding right now. And mm -hmm. so part of what we are trying to do is address some of the clerical issues that we've seen in gun court, some of the issues around training for ADAs, but mm -hmm. also uh, put us in a position to be able to spend a lot more revenue on witnesses and victims. And that's something that we're in the process of negotiating right now as it relates to the city's budget and uh, fall transfer ordinances and how we clean up things at the end of the budget season. So I'm hoping that we can spend, I mean, right now the number everybody's talking about is 500,000. 
Um, I would like to see that number triple, um, anywhere from 1.5 to 3 million, I think that we should be spending right now to help protect witnesses and victims. And that was one of the things that came out of our gun report based on just lived experiences, talking to people, dealing with families who've been victims of crime, working with uh, everybody involved in the, in the judicial system and the criminal justice process to put us in a position to really understand some of the holes that exist and what we can do as legislators to try to fill some of those holes immediately. Sure. And then one, the, one, I don't want to keep you guys all here all night. I love you both. Appreciate your time. We run it up on an hour, and I'm not going to stop you all if you all want to talk. But <laughs> lastly, the one thing I wanted to impress upon you and kind of ask you as, as a judge and obviously as a lawyer is court is all about perception, right? Mm -hmm. It's really not about the truth. It's about what the truth looks like, sure. right? So another part that we need to make sure that is trustworthy, right, that, that we get the right message out is the, the criminal defense bar is just as important of a pro, as a side as, as the, the system, right? But sometimes we look at, like, uh, people say all the time, and I've been a lawyer for nine years, three and a half was at the public defender's office, but they say, oh, I don't, I don't want a public defender. I need a real lawyer, right? <laughs> and it's still to this day, I'm like, bro, you, you can't afford any, and somebody is here fighting for you, and your first thought is to accept that they aren't even trained to do what, like, to help you. What do we do to help that trust with the community to understand, listen, these people are here. Yes, they may be a part of the system. What do we do to, to change the perception? Because I know that public defenders work very hard. I do, They too. mean, you know, the, a lot of their clients. Now, I'm not saying that all of them are, are perfect but because they are people, but I know a lot of them. A lot of them are still my friends to this day, and I go back to that well. And without them, look, I would not be here as talented, as smart as I pretend to be. Oh, I stand <laughs> on, the, on the shoulders of some giants, and they always are willing to help me out. So I, I do everything I can to tell them, like, listen, the PD's office, man, can we please stop throwing disrespect? Well, I think it starts off with um, an understanding that, it's really hard to to unsocialize people, right? Right. That's really, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I mean, I mean, no, 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 no kind of slur or anything at all. But there's a perception that when you get into trouble, you want to get a certain type of lawyer. So when I was a sole practitioner, you know, I wondered and I asked myself, do they think they taught us out of different books, right? <laughs> uh, um, but that there was a perception of a certain type of lawyer that they needed to go get, mm -hmm. right? Um, but that person would, again, not trained any differently. When I look as a judge at lawyers that come in, public defenders are some of the best lawyers that I see. And it's because there's a system at the public defender's office. It's because they, uh, um, you know, they haven't done their first robbery case. They haven't done their first retail theft case. There's systems behind there that has, you know, uh, um, support for the public defenders. And so, no, all public defenders aren't great, but guess what? No group of people, people are just people. I don't care if you're talking about an accountant or judges or public defenders, they're good ones and bad ones. But on, on, on and, and, and private counsel are the same. One of the frustrations that I have is when I see a private counsel that will ex accept the money, mm -hmm. but not do the job. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, I'm not going to call anybody out, but how can I, as a judge, be in, uh, uh, um, in the middle of a jury trial? And so that means we've already picked a jury. Mm -hmm. 
we've already started the case. Mm -hmm. We've already had months of months before that of discovery <laughs> and time and things and motions and all of that that happened. And in the middle of the case, when they were trying to introduce uh, uh, 7548, which is a police report, and when you looked at it, it was illegible. You couldn't read a single word on it. And so we were asking for a, a different copy. And lo and behold, there was never a different copy. So my question is, how could a defense counsel actually go to a jury trial and not know this? Unprepared. Unprepared. Exactly. And so uh, I'm, obviously I'm not going to call anybody out, but the, the, the lack of preparation is a problem as well. And, and, and it, I don't know that there's an answer to your question because you have to untrain people. You know, you get what you pay for. That's, those are the things they're thinking about. So they right. think they haven't paid anybody. They think that it's not worth anything, right? right. And so you, it's, it's, like I said, it's just hard to untrain people. I think the, 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 the only way to, 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 to move this forward is you just have to one-on-one, -on -one, one, one, one at a time, rather, try to educate people. That's all. And that's, I mean, we see it firsthand, and it's so sad because it affects our relationships with our clients, mm -hmm. especially if they've come from an attorney like you're describing, <laughs> because, and I saw him deal with it firsthand. He, he took a case out of the goodness of his heart mm -hmm. because an attorney didn't show up in court. Mm -hmm. His client could have gotten out of jail that day if the wow. lawyer was there. So he took it, right? And the problem is, is because of all the bad advice given, at the end, he fired JJ, right? He was like, because of all the bad advice and everything that got built up, he then basically told him he was wrong. Right. Right, and and, it, then that, and that translates yeah, into it, all lawyers aren't anything, correct. particularly one I don't have to pay for. Yep. It, it just translates into that kind of belief. Yep. And it just never ends, right? They hire another lawyer, they're mad at that lawyer because of all the bad advice. And I mean, that and then, just kills and, me. And that's where you get a bunch of jokes where they say things. What was that joke? Uh, what do you call a hundred lawyers that are drowned at the bottom of the sea? Uh, a good start. A good start. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's where you get these things from, yep. right? Mm -hmm. It is. Yep. It, it is what it is. I think you're right about just one one off, you know, one case at a time. I always encourage folks who get involved in the judicial system in any way, if there's their first offense, to use the public defender's office. Mm -hmm. But just to kind of help people understand, you know, when you're using private practices, you know, you like you said, you might get some good ones, you might get one that's not good. But one thing about the public defender's office that in most places is different than a private practice is that government can hold public defender's offices accountable. So mm -hmm. if we felt like Correct. they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, we could take their funding away or we mm -hmm. could lower their funding or decrease their funding. So unlike, um, you know, in a private practice where, you know, of course there's some accountability as far as, you know, the bar and sure. things like that. Sure. But in, 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 um, when you're dealing with public defenders, there's a lot of public funding that's involved mm -hmm. in that, which means mm -hmm. that they're held accountable in ways that other people aren't. Of so. Course. You know, I agree that one-off and narrative changing is really important, but I just want that to be something that the listening audience thought about because I think a lot of people don't think about the fact that, you know, while you're not paying them, most people are still getting paid. Of course. Right. Right. Of course. Right. 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 Government, right. government can hold them accountable. And, and that I, goes, I'm sorry, that goes right back to the importance of voting. Absolutely. Because it's the allocation of limited resources, and part of those limited resources are allocated to pay public defenders, uh, for, for, for victims' uh, um, safety and services sure. and so forth. And if you are not at the table with your opinion by going to the polls to vote, 
and you shouldn't complain. Yep, absolutely. Listen, guys, I, I couldn't say I couldn't say it any better. Here's all myself. I'm gonna say is that I know I was a little bit quiet on this episode, but I've always learned right take a back seat when you're not the expert. And all we talk about it all the time without guests, right? Criminal justice reform and you know it being thrown around a way to get people to vote. But here's all I want to say to the viewers: this is criminal justice reform in action, right? If you don't hear something like this when you hear a politician speak or a judge. They're, I don't believe they're taking it seriously. I mean, you you know, just listening, I heard the detail. Like these, these are great programs. They're changing the world, hopefully, and changing our world. Right? That's why I, I I didn't have much to say because honestly, I was learning, and I'd rather sit here and listen than my opinion doesn't matter today. So, <laughs> but thank you very much. I, it, well, that I'll was informative keep, for me. Well, I'll certainly <laughs> keep you posted on the Sentencing Foundation. Yes. Absolutely, we, we appreciate your time. We're not going to keep you guys, guys. You guys got millions and millions of dollars worth of information in one hour. I thank them from the bottom I of do. my thank heart. I do, thank you so much. Anytime y'all want to come back and talk, please just hit my line. You got <laughs> open invitation. Hey, well, anytime. You, gotta, you already know. Invitation. I know, I love you both. <laughs> Fighting.